Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, we welcome back director Josh Seftel. Josh and his team at Smarty Pants Films recently received an Oscar nomination in the category of Best Documentary Short for their film Stranger at the Gate, a riveting story of redemption about Richard Mack McKinney, a former U.S. Marine suffering from PTSD who had fought in Afghanistan after 9-11. Following his discharge from the military, McKinney returned home to Muncie, Indiana, where he began to construct a plot to blow up a local mosque. Stranger at the Gate tells the remarkable story of what happened when McKinney set out to put his plan into motion. Here's the trailer. When I first saw him, I remember saying, there's something not right with this guy. It was a little scary. He seemed to be like a redneck. He was walking kind of fast, his head was kind of down, pacing back and forth. I was hoping for at least 200 or more dead, injured. You know, he thought he was doing the right thing. He was at war with Muslims in his mind. When I tell people this story, they tell me that they don't believe me. My dad calls my mom the Mother Teresa of the Muslim community, and it's definitely true. I invited him over for dinner. I couldn't help it except to make him feel from my heart that he's welcome. I could never in a million years repay this community what they've given me. Josh Seftel is known for directing the Emmy Award-winning landmark series Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the feature film War, Inc., starring John Cusack, and his regular appearances on CBS Sunday Morning, where he interviews his 86-year-old mother. Stranger at the Gate is the latest in Seftel's Emmy and Peabody-nominated Secret Life of Muslims project, which combats Islamophobia with filmmaking. His other award-winning films include Taking on the Kennedys, Ennis's Gift, The Home Team, and The Many Sad Fates of Mr. Tolandano. He's also a contributor to the Peabody Award-winning podcast, This American Life, and The New York Times. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do share, follow, and leave a five-star review. Now on to my conversation with Josh Seftel. Hello, Josh Seftel. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, Michael. Great to be back. It's good to be speaking with you again. And let me extend congratulations to you and your team uh, for your Oscar nomination in the category of Best Documentary Short for your film Stranger at the Gate. 
Thank you. We're very excited about it. I want to get into that whole experience of uh, what it felt like to be nominated and and what you're doing, uh, both uh, psychologically and logistically, to prepare for the big event on on March the 12th. But but before we do that, let's talk about Stranger at the Gate. It's a really affecting 30 minute film. Give our listeners sort of a synopsis of the film and how the story came to you or how how you found out about the, this this story of Richard Mack McKinney. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick summary of the story. So the film tells the story of, of Mack McKinney, a U.S. Marine, comes back from 25 years overseas fighting combat. Um, he's a broken person when he comes back. He's PTSD. He's filled with hatred, especially hatred toward Muslims. And he decides that the best thing he can do for his country is to bomb the local mosque in his hometown in Indiana. So he builds a bomb. He's getting ready to to do the deed. And he ends up having an argument with his daughter. His daughter is eight years old. And she has a Muslim friend and he finds out about this and he flips out on her and they have a huge fight and they're yelling at each other and he runs to his room and he's weeping and, you know, the guy's a mess. And he decides that what he needs to do is he needs to go to the mosque to do some reconnaissance to get proof um, of how evil these people are prior to doing the bombing. So he goes to the mosque when he arrives the people at the mosque, the congregants who are, you know, a blend of different people. There's a, there are some Afghan refugees, there's an African-American convert um, and they welcome him into the mosque and they show him incredible kindness, even though they, what they see in front of them is this hulking, scary guy who's covered in tattoos, is flush in the face, is, is, is shaking they can see there's something wrong with this guy and they, they show him compassion and, uh, and they welcome him in. And at that point, the story takes a, a dramatic turn. Now, whether or not you want me to, I'm happy to, to spoil the ending. Let's not uh, spoil the ending. Let's okay. not spoil the ending. I, I don't know that this is necessarily a spoiler, but in, in multiple headlines, Regarding the film, there's a description where it is a a, a story of hope and love overcoming um, conflict and and hate. So I don't think yeah. that qualifies as a spoiler. I hope it I hope it qualifies as an enticement to for people to watch yeah. the film. Another headline that I really liked um, that kind of captures the spirit of the film is um, something like he came he came to kill them they ended up saving his life. Right. Right. So how did you find out about this story? I was working on a series of short films called secret life of Muslims. And Mm -hmm. the whole idea behind that was to create a platform to share stories about American Muslims uh, that I felt were important to tell because there weren't enough stories being told about American Muslims that were accurate, that, that captured uh, the spirit of, you know, what it, what it is to be Muslim in America right now. And the reason I was drawn to this was that, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. And when I was a little boy, I got picked on for being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kids called me names, they called me Jew kike. 
threw pennies at me to remind me that, you know, Jews are cheap. And, you know, those, those things stayed with me. And after 9-11, when I was working as a filmmaker in, you know, I saw my Muslim friends facing that similar kind of hate. And I felt a connection to them and felt as a filmmaker, maybe there's something I can do. Mm-hmm. So I, I started the, making these films. And in the process, we came across this story, the story of Mac McKinney mm-hmm. and the mosque in Muncie, Indiana. And, you know, one of my producers, Anna, Anna Rowe, I think found the story in USA Today University Edition. Okay. <laughs> and we decided like, oh, this is, this story is incredible. Right. You know? um, and we went and we found the people who were involved and met them and were just blown away by the, how inspiring they are and how inspired, especially the, the congregants at the mosque. Bibi Barami and Sabra Barami are a married couple. They're Afghan refugees mm-hmm. and they founded the mosque. In He's the physician. He's a BB or Sabra is a physician and BB is his wife and she's an activist in the community. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones who were there when Mac arrived and they were the ones who, uh, you know, welcomed him. Right. Sabra Barami got down on his knees and hugged Mac's legs when Mac arrived at the mosque. And yeah, that's a that's a very powerful uh, segment of the film. Was it a difficult process for you to establish trust and a rapport uh, with with Mac McKinney? Because, you know, there's a there's a segment in the film where you can be heard off camera asking him, how did killing people change you? And, it, and it's such an abrupt, direct question. It, it seems to take him almost he almost loses his breath. He has to take a, a beat or two. And he says, I never really told that. And from the viewer's perspective, and I, I'm assuming this is obviously a deliberate choice. We still don't know what his decision was mm-hmm. uh, when going to the mosque at the at the time you posed that question. And as a viewer. I'm thinking, are you referencing killing people in the military or killing people in the aftermath of what was going to be a domestic terrorist event? Um, I would imagine you've got to feel pretty secure in your rapport with a subject to come at them with a question like that. We had talked a lot. We knew each other well at this point. And and I made a point of spending time with him and talking to him a lot before the interview. You know, the way that I approached it was I wore a microphone as well, you know, because I wanted I wanted to make sure that with this film, I just I knew that there were going to be moments in the interview that would be really important. And, you know, it's, this film is where this film is very interview based. Yes. And um, because we're we're telling we're retelling a story that's already happened. Right. So by wearing a microphone and by interacting with, with my subjects um, in a way that at times might feel a little provocative, I was looking for moments where, 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 we, we, where, where the character of these people would be revealed, not just through words, but through their reaction to my questions. Right. And, you know, that was one moment like that where, he didn't even answer my question, yeah. but that 15 seconds of 
silence and fumbling and then him drinking a glass of water, I think says more than more than a thousand words um, about his state of mind, about how he felt about things, about who he is. Mm-hmm. And those moments are like that. There's a few of them in the film are, are some of my favorite moments in the film um, because they reveal so much truth. And there's a there's an inanimate object that is referenced a couple of times in the film, which which I thought served as as such a powerful metaphor. And that inanimate object is a paper target on a shooting range. And it's referenced. I believe Mac is is quoting or paraphrasing a military supervisor who tells him at one point, think of the people you're killing in a you know, in a in a combat capacity as human as that paper target. And then later in the film, he has a dream about this paper target. Any thoughts on that? It's one of my favorite parts of the film is, you know, Mac had to find a way to cope with killing when he was in the military. It wasn't going well. And he, so he went to one of his superiors and he said, what should I do? I'm losing my mind. And the guy said, you have to think of them as paper targets. They're not people. They're not human. They're paper targets. And if you, if you can do that, you'll be fine. And so essentially he was saying to Mac, you got to flip the switch. Right. They're not people. Dehumanize them. And so Mac did that to cope. But when you come back to the States and you're not on the battlefield anymore, you know, you have to find a way to flip the switch back. Right. And I don't think he knew how to do that. And as a result, his hatred for Muslims it prevailed, it, it persisted and prevailed and to the point where he was ready to commit mass murder on American soil and to kill 200 innocent people uh, who would be observing on, you know, observing on Friday night prayers. He, he didn't know how to flip the switch back. And that was the, that was the paper target concept. And yet an interesting distinction is that at least on a subconscious level, he talks about a dream that involves the paper target, but the paper target (laughs) responds in a very human way. Yeah. So as he's thinking more and, and about what he's planning to do, he has this dream where he shoots the paper target and the paper target begins to bleed you know, essentially that paper target becomes, becomes human, becomes a living thing, you know, in a sense, I guess you could say he was healing. He was becoming, he was starting to see them as human again. That is, uh, maybe that was maybe his salvation. Do you know if, if, if Max sought treatment for PTSD when, when he ended his military career, did he think of himself as somebody who had PTSD? I know he's done a lot of therapy, I think more so in recent years. Okay. Uh, I think at that time he was drinking a lot when Mm -hmm. at the time when he was thinking of bombing the mosque, he was, he was drinking, I think two, two gallons of vodka every couple of days or something. I mean, it was like, it was a bad time and he was, you know, crying a lot and just not well. And, uh, I think that was around the time when he was building the bomb and thinking about doing doing this this uh, horrible act. 
So he makes his first visit to the mosque, essentially, to uh, it's a reconnaissance mission. He's he's scoping the place out. He's you know, he's probably gathering intel uh, to to eventually go through with the act. But over a period of, I believe it's eight weeks, this metamorphosis takes place. What's your sense of aside from his his probably being caught off guard by the way he was welcomed into the community upon his initial visit? What's your sense of other sort of touch points or milestones that occurred during that period of eight weeks where it no longer became even feasible for him to commit violence against these people? I think, um, you know, they were kind to him. The friendship formed. He was hanging around the the mosque. He he kept coming back. Right. Hanging around. And, you know, he was joining them for prayer. He was joining them for meals. Uh, he was sharing his life with them and it became a part of his, of his everyday life. And these people became human beings to him and not just, um, some idea of that he saw on Fox news or read about on the internet but they were actually fully formed human beings that he couldn't, and he couldn't deny their humanity. Uh, And that was, I think what was changing in him. And that was what sent him in a new direction. You had mentioned um, a little bit earlier around uh, a sense of empathy that you had developed around in a reaction essentially to Islamophobia that that really peaked in the in the uh, aftermath of 9-11, largely based on the uh, anti-Semitism that that you had encountered in, in your life. Did you have a sense that for in, in Mac's world, uh, anybody that wasn't like him, in other words, the other, the generic other, were, were groups that his psychological makeup would allow him to easily dismiss? Or was that a byproduct of his military training? I don't know how someone develops that level of hatred. I think when you're on the battlefield and people are shooting at you and they all seem to be from one group, you know, right. in this case, many of them were Muslim, mm-hmm. um, they become the enemy. And then when you're, when you're shooting back at them and possibly killing some of them, the way you cope with it is, I think in Mac's case was to not think of them, to think of them as not being human. And, uh, you know, I think that that was the foundation of, of his hatred. Did you get the sense in following his, his growth that this is a an, an ongoing process for him. What has he been doing to address his his own psychological blockers um, in the aftermath of the conversion that he made? I guess I'll tell you what happens at the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, here's the spoiler. Pause so, here, everybody, and go go to YouTube or The New Yorker to watch this film. That's right. It's it's free on YouTube. Watch it and then come back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So Mac. Not only did Mac end up not bombing the mosque, he ended up converting to Islam, yeah. joining the mosque. Then the, the members of the mosque found out that he had intended to kill them. So they invited him over for dinner and confronted him about it. And he explained that why he was thinking that way and how he had changed and that they had changed him. 
and they forgave him. Right. And then ultimately he became president of the mosque. Yeah. So, which is incredible. Just incredible. Yeah. yeah. Now at one point in the film, the FBI is at his apartment. What transpired to, uh, to bring his plan to the attention of the FBI? So he was in college at this time. And, you know, at this point he had converted to Islam, joined the mosque. Mm -hmm. and he was um, a member of the community. And in college, he, one of his professors learned about his plan to um, bomb the mosque. And he explained that he was not planning to do that anymore, but that that had been part of his recent past. Mm -hmm. and the professor said, you know, this is very interesting and you should embrace this and you should speak about it because you could help change the way people think with your story. So Mac started talking about it and he gave he gave a talk at to one of his classes about his journey. And one of the people in the class called the F, called the FBI and said, I'm scared of this guy. He's talking about bombing the mosque in town and you should check it out. And that's how um, that's how the FBI showed up at his house. And that's how the members of the mosque found out that about what he was planning to do. And that's when they invited him over from mm -hmm. dinner and confronted him. So we talked a little bit at the very top of the conversation about how you, how your film is nominated for an Oscar in the category of best documentary short. And I was curious when you decided that you wanted to tell this story, what were the drivers? What were the decision? What was the decision-making process around deciding on length? If you wanted to, could you have told this story uh, in over the span of, say, 90 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes? That's a good question. Um, we always went into it thinking it was a short. Um, mm -hmm. And partly that was because of th that was about how much funding we had. You sure. know, we, we, there's a myriad of factors. <laughs> yeah, we knew like we had enough to make a short, but not a longer film. What happened was um, as we were editing it, there was a moment where and this has happened before on other short films I've done where you have a cut, you know, and the cuts like 50 minutes and you're kind of like, Oh, maybe this is a feature, you know, right. maybe this, maybe we could, maybe we can make this into a feature, you know, maybe we just need to add 10 or 15 minutes to it. And, and, and so we did toy with that for a moment, but we quickly realized that as the film got shorter, it kept getting better. And, you know, at one point it was like 36 and, um, we, that was, that was the version we submitted to Sundance and, um, and we didn't get into Sundance with that version because I don't think it was done yet. And we finally cut another seven minutes from it and made, mm -hmm. some, made some significant changes in, in the structure. Mm -hmm. And that's when we, um, got into, uh, Tribeca. And um, ultimately, we won a prize at Tribeca, which really launched us on this this trajectory. And and tell me how the New Yorker uh, came to be involved. Sure, we shared the film with the New Yorker early in 2022, and they really liked the film. And then <clears throat> we decided that we would join forces around around Tribeca is when we really did it. And then they released the film in September. Uh, on their channels, including YouTube. Mm -hmm. 
and they're a great partner. You know, they are, um, they have five Oscar nominations this year. We're proud to be one of those. They, I think they have good taste and we were really, we were really honored that they um, thought our film was deserving of being a New Yorker film. I have a uh, question around uh, a sort of a stylistic choice that you made uh, in the interview segments of the film. The interviewees are are direct are addressing the camera head on. They're they're, they're looking directly into the camera when you're thinking about how you want to shoot interviews, how you want to conduct interviews. What dictates something like that? From what angle do we want to shoot the interviewees? Uh, is it okay to hear the question off screen occasionally? Because, you know, quite obviously there's a, there's a technique that's often employed is the interviewee gives you an answer and the, and the filmmaker says, that's a fantastic answer, but could you start it again and put this word before that word, that kind of a thing? The eyeline thing is, is something I'd like to do on some films. You know, it's um, obviously I'm not the first one to employ that technique. You know, Earl Morris was doing it. Sure. And I always found it to be really compelling uh, that eye contact where you have this confessional quality where the, the subject is speaking directly to it feels like they're speaking directly to you, the viewer. I find that to be really engaging, uh, uh, especially in a film like this, where there's a retelling and there's memories and confessional quality. Right. Um, and, um, you know, that's I think it's powerful and engaging. So. That was that was definitely a, a part of it. Now, tell me what what was the second question you were? The question was was around the decision where you you said it or you felt apparently that you know it's okay if if the viewer hears a question being asked off off camera. Sometimes that's edited around that, you know, all of the interviewee responses seem to emerge from the ether because the viewer never hears the question. Like in, for instance, in that segment that I referenced where um, you asked him about what it felt like to kill. I mean, I would say regarding my voice as an interviewer being included, I like that sometimes when, when it sort of comes out of nowhere, it yeah. does a few things. I think one is when you hear the voice of the interviewer, you're reminded that there, this is an interview and this is, uh, you know, this is a film. And there's something I think kind of exciting about, about that, that, that sort of wakes people up, you know, mm -hmm. that, that um, catches the attention of the viewer. And, and to me, what it says is, Oh, this is, this must be an important moment. You know, uh, I hear the filmmaker's voice. Something. Yeah, there's a spontaneity to it. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, yeah, I think it's exciting when I see that in a film. And I'd like to do it in certain moments that are important moments. And again, it's partly to show that interaction, that that unspoken, you know, it's, it's the reaction to the question. Normally in a film, in a film uh, with interviews, you just see the answers. You rarely get to see the subject's reaction to the question, their facial expression, the pause they take, the way their eyes move when they're listening to the question. And, um, you know, sometimes that can be incredibly interesting 
to watch the subject's reaction to a question. And that's partly why we included those moments because again, the, they, the, to me, they said more than any words that that person could have said. With Absolutely. Expressions were so interesting and, and revealed some truth about them. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because you particularly say in, in that, in that one instance that I mentioned, you actually, you see Mac McKinney, considering the weight of that question in real time. There's nothing that feels prepared uh, uh, about that exchange at all, which makes it all that much more powerful. Yes. Agreed. Tell me about what the morning was like uh, when you found out that your film had been nominated for an Oscar. The Academy asked us all to record our reactions on video, like selfie video. Okay. I had very little interest in doing this. In fact, I was I was um, not going to participate. And then um, some of the people on my team said, no, let's just do it. We'll all do it together on Zoom. And if we don't make it, we'll just trash the video. And if we do make it, we'll have it. And so I was like, all right, fine. You know, we're, we're at 8.30 in the morning, January 24th. And there's six of us on Zoom and we're all watching and they get to the best best documentary short and they read the first name it's not us second name not us and you know now we're all starting to like shrink a little bit in our seats <laughs> get a little lower you know um third name not us some of us are starting to put our our faces into our hands you know <laughs> and fourth name not us and we're like oh well we didn't make it you know and at this point, we're tiny. Everyone's shrunken down into the bottom of their screens. <laughs> and suddenly, um, the fifth one was us. And all of us in unison, just all six of us just popped up yeah, back to our original size. And we just did not expect it at that point. And we were, we were delighted. And, and a large part of it is just that we know what it means, you know, that it means that this film will be seen by so many more people right and this message of you know the idea that love conquers hate which we is something we really a message i think we need right now uh is going to be out in the world in, in an even bigger way i mean since since we were nominated you can we you can just watch the youtube views um they're going up by thousands and thousands of views every day Right. And, um, and that's really exciting to us. Yeah. It's, it's love conquers hate. And it's that admonition that, you know, dare to see your perceived enemy as a human being and, and then run your, run your hatred through your brain again and see if it survives that, that experience. That's a great way to put it. I love that. Nobody going to the Oscars, uh, can get away with not being asked this question. Who are you bringing? And who are you wearing? Uh, I'm bringing my wife, Erica Frankel, who's also a filmmaker. And I'm also bringing Malala Yousafzai, uh, the Nobel Prize. Right, I read about that. Being uh, executive producer of our film. And uh, amazing. We're, we're very excited to be going all together. And, you know, she, Malala, really believes in this film. And, you know, she said, this is a film we, we all need right now. Yeah. And it's it's exciting to have that kind of endorsement and that kind of support because 
I think in many ways, Malala is the, is the, like, is the human embodiment of the message of our film. Right. You know, she represents compassion, education, and also forgiveness. That's, that's what our film's about. And Josh, I would be remiss in having a conversation with you if I did not ask how your mother was. Mm, yeah, my mom is doing well. You know, she's um, we've been we've continued to do our conversations. Uh, you, you can see them on CBS Sunday morning. Yeah. Sometimes they're also in um, movie theaters across the country. Yep. And uh, we did an, a recent conversation about the nomination because she was also watching. And I love it. We discussed that. That's playing in, in movie theaters right now. And uh, it was a fun it was a fun conversation. She's very excited, probably more excited than I am. And, uh, it, you know, it, it means a lot to her. Is she still in Florida? She is. Yeah. yeah. And she really wants me to talk to Brad Pitt if I if I see him. So <laughs> You can't let your mother down. Come on, Josh. Certainly not. Certainly not. <laughs> well, sincere congratulations from everybody at Filmmakers Collaborative. Uh, the film is Stranger at the Gate. You can see it on YouTube. You can go to the New Yorker website and see it there. And I've been speaking with the director of the film, Josh Seftel. Thanks so much, Josh. And we will be watching and eagerly anticipating the outcome of the category award at the uh, 95th Academy Awards, a.k.a. the Oscars, on March the 12th. Thanks, Michael. And I, I want to one last thing. I just want to say a thank you to Filmmakers Collaborative for being our partner on this film and, you know, and for being our fiscal sponsor. We love working with you all and we wouldn't be here today uh, without you. So thank you for, for your partnership. That sounds great. Thanks, Josh. Be well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.